History Lecture 112, um, yesterday we did, we, we talked about whatever we can say about the, uh, this period that's referred to as the Shoah, the Holocaust, and um, tried to maybe correct some misconceptions, put some perspective on it. Uh, the dimensions are, maybe it's easier to deal with the dry data than it is to get down to the uh, personal, the level of the personal, but we're going to do that hopefully uh, today a little bit more. Um, Try to try to put a human face on this, and again, our bias, our emphasis here is the Torah angle. Um, I, I, what, what do we understand? So, um, big questions. We often, like in life in general, do elude us. We often don't have um, glib, easy, easy ways of understanding. We, um, as Rabbi Yanai teaches in Pirkei Avos, it's not in our hands to understand neither the. Um, the shalva, the shilvasha, uh, rishayim, this, this apparent tranquility of the wicked, nor the, um, the suffering of the righteous. That's, these are what the um, Christian philosopher Hume coined the phrase theodicy, questions of theodicy. Um, what's more popularly expressed is why do bad things happen to good people, good things happen to bad people. In Chazal, they refer to it as tzadik viralo, or rasha betovlo. Um, these are these are big questions that Chazal indicate are very much out of our grasp. Part of our problem is our ability to know exactly who's a tzaddik and who's a rasha. We know that often people who appear to be tzaddikim um, aren't necessarily, and conversely, sometimes the uh, people who seem to be mediocre and even sometimes evil. Um, surprise us, and we told the story, the famous story associated with the Tosos Yantif. Uh, in, in Krakow of the uh, miser who everybody despised until at his death they realized that he was secretly underwriting the entire town uh, and that every and, and, and his, his, his tzedakah was done properly uh, according to according to Chazal the seser quietly and so nobody really recognized his greatness um, so we don't know exactly who's a tzaddik who's a rasha and we honestly to add This is a question. That I told you this story. Yeah. I don't recall. Well, uh, he, after World War II, there's a rabbi. After World War II, there was a rabbi, and this rabbi, um, everyone felt like, how can he be a rabbi? Because like, before World War II, he was like, he was like the meanest person. Oh, I see. Kind of person, right? I don't know. And World yeah, War II made him better. Everything, right? So it turns out that um, people used to go in and ask for a bracha, but he used to tell them what. He used to write on a piece of paper, right? Yeah. Outside of the rabbi's room, he used to come in, and he used to tell them before they told them what they wanted, right? That um, what, what what the bracha was, and then they give him a piece of paper, right? they pay him some money, and then he died for them. Okay. And then uh, they found out that he was actually lying the whole time. The only reason how I didn't say the story, although it could be something. I mean, it's 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 a story of the times, not just our times. I mean, it's a there's a, an industry to be had in playing on people's superstitions. And it sounds like that's kind of a story you're, you're taking. So again, going back to the issue of theodicy, of, of why, why it seems that bad things happen to good people, good things happen to bad people, but we don't even know to say who the good people are and the bad people are. Furthermore, we know to add to the complexity, we don't know what suffering is exactly, we don't know what, what reward is. We often perceive, let's say, people have immense wealth, and you know, how come that's no fair? How come they made out with wealth? We all, but but deeply, if you really are a student of of, um, of human affairs, you recognize that sometimes great wealth is the worst curse, 
And conversely, sometimes a most of us go through periods of tremendous suffering, of hardship, and then often we look back, depending on what it was, and we, we see, oh, that was really a blessing in disguise to complicate things. Um, the presumption of modern man, man includes that he can understand these things, and that's why one hears variations, people say uh, variations of the following of uh, the Holocaust doesn't make sense, uh, and they say outrageous theoretic things, certainly heretical things, but also kind of silly things, like they don't believe in God, or Elie Wiesel famously wrote a kfira at night, he wrote sing, sing, as it were, but the image that he, he planted in the modern collective mind of, of, of a shem hanging on the gallows, right, that's, that's how he liked to, which, which really just reflects his own, his own, his own um, lack of sophistication, his own um, spiritual myopia, and um, and we talk about Gitz Greenberg's nonsense and many, many other things. So, so, so the Jewish perspective is we, these, we're, we're in over our heads when we start understanding a Kaddish Baruch's ways. We know that everything happens in the universe for some reason, often beyond us. Um, what we can do, though, is get along, get along with one another, and in the middle of the insanity, try to help. So I'm going to mention a couple of um, personalities who actually were post-scheme during the horrors, during, throughout, throughout the period, um, one very famous name, maybe you're familiar with the name, his name is Ephraim Oshri, who was a young man, relatively. Um, he was born in 1914. So, you know, already, already in his 20s, when, when the Nazi regime emerged, and uh, not much older when, as he endured, he actually lived all the way to 2003. And um, he was one of the few to survive, one of the few post-scheme who survived. Um, and he was in a less-known ghetto called the Kaunas Ghetto. And he wrote Shilas and Shubas about uh, things that came up. And they are worth going through. They're a fascinating glimpse at, uh, at, at, at the um, inside of people's amuna in a, under unthinkable kinds of um, pressure and, and, and within, within these circumstances. Uh, interesting, he wrote these shootim. And a few days before the um, final battle with the Soviets, when the ghetto was about to be um, liberated, he didn't know what to, what was coming, and it seemed at any minute, like most people would, most of the survivors testified that they didn't know if they were going to live and die, literally from minute to minute, which honestly is kind of the way we are as human beings. Um, we just today are living, I mean, we, we're used to, most people go through um, life in denial, assuming that they're going to be alive forever. The Gemara I recently did in Sanhedrin likens life to uh, going, th going through life as, um, like um, having a fish hook. A fish hook, which is this weak, not a particularly uh, strong weapon as far as weapons go. But suddenly the fish, the fish hook has the capacity to come and take even a big, strong, indomitable kind of a fish and hook it, line it, sink, you know, and, 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 and fish it out of the water out of nowhere when it was least expecting it and kill it. So too the Gemara tells us that's the way it is to walk through life. We don't know at which point a person could be taken when his time is up and suddenly harshly and seemingly to our untrained eyes cruelly nothing is cruel in a Kaddish Baruch's world but we don't perceive it that way anyway he didn't know what was going to happen from minute to minute to minute so he hid it he hid it uh, carefully and um, after the show he went back and he retrieved it 
he describes uh, the, one of the reasons to read it is to be inspired to find out his own personal nefesh, but other people too all around him, their, their self-dedication, literally risking their lives for Torah, for mitzvahs, for chesed, to helping other people. It's, uh, it's, it's, it's uh, the ultimate humanizing kind of uh, 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 book that you can see how people endured this hardship and did not lose their humanity. Um, there was a Shiloh, for example, I'll give you just a little bit of a taste. Uh, people wanted to know uh, whether they were permitted to place a child with non-Jews in order to save the child's life. Um, the question was, will they give the child back after the Shoah, after the war is over, if there is an after the war? Who, who, who could even think to the point? I mean, there was no sense in the middle of 1944, you didn't know when after the Shoah was. You didn't realize it was all going to be over uh, within a year. And um, he permitted it. He said, you're allowed to do it. He said that for a child who doesn't have das, that would be okay. He drew the line. He said a Jew to impersonate a non-Jew and to pretend, let's say, he was a Christian and to go among the, 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 the non-Jews that way. He said, because it's specifically, it's also Gmar and Sanhedrin, because it's Shasa Shmad, because it's during this time of persecution when um, the famous Gemara and Sanhedrin tells us that a person does symbolically have to, uh, when we say Yaharik Val Yavar has to die and not, not give up, he says under those circumstances you could not pretend to be a Christian. Uh, you'd have to die first and not, and not, uh, and not transgress. <coughs> In another tshuva, um, he writes about doing mitzvahs even at personal risk. He cites, see if you can get this from history, he cites one of the great icons of history who at personal risk in front of the king himself, um, the, <coughs> this particular icon continued to daven. Go ahead. Daniel. Very good, Barak. <coughs> Remember Daniel? Remember this? Oh, in, um, <coughs> against the uh, divine decree that was manipulated by Daryavish's um, lower flunkies. Daniel was uh, pr prohibited by law from davening, and while they were trying him, he stood there davening mincha, and they threw him into the lion's den, and Kach Baruch took care of him. So similarly, um, the, I mean, he actually writes himself that he continued to teach Torah publicly. He gave shir, and that was absolutely uh, by, by punishment of death against the Nazi decree, um, and he, he did it. That's what, that's what a Jew does. And we, he, he was not. He survived. Oh, this is Rabbi Fryan Oshri. Oh, the guy you, what, what, one thinks of Rabbi Akiva in the story, he said, uh, you know, a fish needs water. I, I cannot teach Torah. <coughs> Learn Torah. Um, he writes elsewhere that Jews should try to escape. He said, run, run away. He said he, he, he was in favor of joining the partisans in the forest, if you could do so. He, in other words, very realistic. Uh, he, in another tshuva, was asked what the proper nusach is for dying on Kiddush Hashem. He said, Elsewhere we see there seems to be a discrepancy in the Nusach. Some say, right? either to sanctify God's name publicly or at your name publicly. Um, if, you, if death is imminent, immediately before death, one would say the bracha. And there were many, many facing a firing squad. Yeah, exactly. Then they would shoot you. What's that? Like you were in a Usually there's three, two, one fire. 
So at the, at the last moments when it's imminent, and often in the case, I mean, how many millions were killed by, by exactly this thing? This, this, was, this was a very, very practical. Should, should you say the Shema first, or are you? Uh, Shema you know, for sure. You say Shema? No, I think uh, that's you interesting. Because die. Well, that's the story of Rabbi Akiva. But it seems that the brachas last. It seems that the brachas last. The, um, it's funny, in Kriya Shema Lamita, we have a similar thing. We say Shema last, or the bracha last. Lamaisa Yoyotsi with either one. So it seems, it seems to be okay. Um, we saw this, if you remember, we, we saw this with um, Avram ben Avraham. The Ger, during the time of the Vilna Gaon, who converted and then died in public, and the Vilna Gaon said that um, a Jew should go in the audience disguised in order to be able to answer Amen to his bracha, and somehow a Jew who was clean-shaven was able to get away with it, and he answered Amen to Avram ben Avram's bracha before he was killed. He was uh, at, in the auto de fe and uh, burned at the stake, and um, the, the Gra held that the world changed when he died. That's why he's more lenient when it comes to Megalvasser. In, in, right indoors, we, we mentioned that story. Um, I mean, this is terrible at this time. I'm I, I'm overwhelmed with uh, with the show, but it does it does sort of uh, make the point. The, the joke that's told among uh, um, among the briskers, they, they um, you hear about the brisker who faced the firing squad. So um, as they started counting down, three, two, one, he said, two. One, and suddenly, miraculously, all of the guns simultaneously jammed. And everybody, all the soldiers firing, couldn't figure out what had happened. And the brisker looked at everybody, and he went like this. It's a half sake. No? It's a terrible joke. But it's a great joke. It's extremely witty. Anyway, um, it's a terrible joke. The... Um, <laughs> Totally out of place right now. What was it? What was I thinking? Okay, the um, Ravoshi has another shaila, very interesting, allowing. Um, well, the Jews asked; they were hidden by a. a, a Listen, no, because you're anus, anus rachmane patre. What can you do about in such a situation? Right, right. The um, they were hidden by a what's called. Baruch Hashem. These should be your problems. Yeah, like that. Right. I, again, it's the same kind of thing. What if you said a bracha and suddenly, suddenly your, you know, your lulav and esrog spontaneously combusted? Yeah, I get it. Right? Okay. The, um, they were hidden by a non-Jewish woman. Right? One of the chasidi umos ha'olam, one of the righteous of the, of the world. And then she died. And they asked him if they could say kaddish on her behalf. And he said yes. There is olam haba, certainly for chasidei uh, umos olam, and uh, saying kaddish is an iluy neshama, and uh, such a such a such a righteous person, uh, he he held would would deserve kaddish. Um, another posik, he has all kinds of shailas. He has a shaila about what do you do if the baby's crying, and um, if you let the baby cry, they'll find the whole family. No, no, they're hiding in Anne Frank style. Not, not Anne Frank, but that style Shiloh where they were hiding from the Nazis and the Nazis came to, they raided the house to go look for the Jews and they were well hidden, but the baby was crying. Can you kill the baby to save the family? I refer you to the tshuva. I refer you to the It's the same reason for, for uh, saving the, um, the mother over the child, the child. Certainly you're on the right track. Right, that's an issue. I'm not going to give you the answer. Go look, go, look, go look up the tshuva. Go look at the tshuva. It's extremely poignant. 
And um, of course, we're interested in the halacha lemaisa, but these were the shilas that they had to ask. These were the situations that uh, our family found themselves in. Um, a posik in Auschwitz by the name of Tzvi Hirsch Meisels was asked the following shaila. Um, what do you say? A man, I don't know if he was a kapo or an assimilator, you know what a kapo was? The kapo was, we mentioned this thing with the Nazis cynically figured out, and not the first time in history that the, that the um, enemies of the Jews used the Jews against one another. We were the ones to determine the fate, who was going to live, who was going to die. They regulated us. Um, so this man was in such a position. And um, he had a son, and it was his only son. And the boy was slated to die. And this man had the power, because of his, his, you know, his temporarily in his position, of saving his son's life and putting another Jew in the gas chambers instead. This was in Auschwitz. And he approached with Svi Hirsch Meisel, who was called the Meisels, who was called the Posik at Auschwitz. And he said, um, he asked the question like this. He said, you know, I can, I can be pulled in my son. I can redeem my son from death. But another Jewish boy has to die. What do I do? What do you pass him? So Rav Meisels um, refused to pass him. Okay, can't, can't. I can't answer such a question. So the man um, understood that it was obviously not mutter. You, know, you can't say whose blood is red. And Kidavin um, Bedekar Shbarach should accept his personal Akeda. Um, there was a great Jew by the name of Shlomo Zelikovsky who was in the Lodge ghetto. He was a chazan who had a beautiful voice. And um, when he and others were led to the gallows in front of hundreds of Jews who were about to be murdered, so he um, started davening from Yom Kippur. He davened from the um, Chazar Sashats where we read about the Sarah Ruge Malthus, the, the Ten Martyrs, you're familiar? Right? So he started, he started davening from that. And all the Jews were there and they were all wrapped. And the Nazis were going about the business and the Jews completely tuned them out. There were a couple survivors, obviously, that's how we know these such stories. Uh, the, the Jews were able to turn them out and completely, everybody engrossed uh, with, with, the, with the beautiful voice of Rav Zelikovsky. And when he got, he got to Shema Yisrael, and um, his voice was piercing, everybody, all the Jews present, all joined. Um, in another, in another uh, episode, there were people who sang Animamin as they went to the dance. Um, there was another such. There was another story where they, uh, the Nazis had a young, a group of young students of Ger Hasidim, Hasidic Gur, who um, were learning the entire time because Ger Hasidim, their start, there's no nonsense. Torah, 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 and they knew that they were about to be murdered, and they were brought to the edge of the pit, and they wouldn't stop learning the whole time. They were learning Torah. So as as the end neared. These, these uh, beautiful uh, neshamas broke into dance. They were able to, to start dancing ecstatically, and the Nazis counted down, and the shots rang out, and the men fell into dancing into the pit. And it's an image that uh, is actually, you make connections in history, it calls to mind um, a very parallel story that we, we said here, if you remember, Tat, 
we told the story of a, of a tzaddik named Gadol, named Rav Shimshon of Ostropol, who on, in, in 1648 was led to his death with his community and also went, 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 went Al-Kadosh Hashem uh, dancing. The um, Rabbanim of the Warsaw ghetto, ghetto included one of the great figures, Rav Menachem Ziemba, who was uh, one of the last Rabbanim present in the ghetto before the, what the Nazis like to call, dehumanizing the Jews, the liquidation before they finally emptied the ghetto. This was after the, the ghetto uprising that didn't really lead very far. It was simply a, um, one last gasp of the Jews to fight back, but eventually the Jews were um, suppressed. And there was an offer for these rabbis, there were three rabbis, including Rabbi Ziemba, they could save themselves. They could get out of the ghetto and not be sent to the camps. And um, they did not elect to do so. They wanted to be there with their other Jews. So, um, they said, well, we'll risk dying on Kiddush Hashem. It wasn't certain death. You didn't know exactly what was coming. You didn't know what was at the end of the trains, although you could guess. Um, Rav Ziemba wrote a number of great works. He wrote a manuscript that was already highly regarded. Many people were talking about it. A commentary, another commentary on Rambam's Mishnah Torah and the Yad called Machasei HaMelech. And um, it, it was lost too. And um, they all died on Kiddush Hashem as well. And um, his... He, he was brought to burial, though, in 1958. They reinterred his body, and he's buried in Harmanuchos. It's one of the places we didn't have time to visit. You've heard of the Eish Kodesh? Rav Kolonimus Kalman Shapira. Uh, I'll tell you why you might have heard of him. There are communities today. He's in, an immensely inspiring figure. Deep, passionate. No, uh, no, no. No, no. The figure, his personality is alive. That's what happens with Siddiqui. They never die. But the, um, his figure is, is one of such, he's such, a, of such gigantic proportions. There's a community in the five towns in, the, uh, in, in New York um, that's called the Eish Kodesh. There's a very popular community in Ramat Beit Shemesh called Eish Kodesh and, and others, and people learn his farim. I'll describe his farim too. You, sh- you, should, know that you should know his name. He was the Piazetz Nerevi, Piazetz from, from Poland. Um, he was a descendant of the Noam Elimelech, Rav Elimelech of Lezhensk, and of the Chos of Lublin, and of the Magid of Koznitz. So he came with tremendous yichas, uh, who was known prior to the Shoah. He was one of the great figures of, of uh, Europe that was destroyed in, in, in the Shoah, who had written prolifically. He was a, a pure mechanech. Um, people study, people who are into education study the Eish Kodesh to understand how should you deal with people. And um, he founded one of the largest yeshivas in Warsaw be- between the wars. He writes a modern classic of Musr called the Chovos HaTalmidim. Are you familiar with it? Okay, it's a relatively popular uh, Musr book nowadays. What's that? We have it here. Um, it's a little, for some people, intense, I warn you. Um, he's shooting for a high level, and his, 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 his uh, intended target audience is somebody who's holding on a clearly reasonably uh, high level of frumkite. So some people are, you know, it's too much for some people. But if you're warned and you know that going in, then it's incredibly uplifting, inspiring. Um, he, among other approaches to education, was somebody who advocated, he was, he was not in favor of harsh... T- What's intense about it is that he is shooting for a very high level. What's very mild about it is that he was against any kind of harsh discipline, harsh punishment. He, was, he had a very gentle soul. 
Uh, he was a big critic of what he called rote learning. Just go about everything, just going through the motions. Uh, he says, that's not how you learn Torah. Uh, he taught the way to educate a child was to imbue the child with a vision of his own personal greatness and his potential greatness. Where, where do you see this person going? And the Rebbe has to see not just the person in front of him, but who that person is going to be 10, 15, 20 years down the line and draw that out and help, help nurture the child. I refer you to a similar approach in Revolvi's book on parenting, who also talks about the importance and the, the um, nuanced, difficult art of parenting, of educating, of trying to draw the person out without crushing them, without, on the one hand, leaving them too open and hefker, too uh, undisciplined, but on the other hand, uh, allowing the child to naturally grow and be nurtured uh, in Torah and spirituality. He says, teachers, I'm quoting him, have to learn to speak the language of their students. They have to somehow convey the pleasure that they feel in clinging, in dveikus, in clinging to a Kaddish Barfu. And the child should just naturally gravitate. You don't have to push too hard. Uh, I always felt the Kiruv sometimes, some Kiruv comes on way too strong. If it's true, that'll just come through. You'll just set a model for that. You don't have to push. The students either take it or leave it, but you'll set the right model. That's very much P. Zetzner's approach. And our, uh, arguably today, it's one of the reasons why uh, his, his legacy is, is, is so um, strong and effective. Um, he, was a, he was in the Warsaw ghetto, ghetto as well. And while in the Warsaw Ghetto was a large place, it's a whole story. I'm not going to tell the whole story of the Warsaw Ghetto. It ends badly, as you can understand. Um, he ran a secret shul. Having a shul was certainly outlawed, uh, but he had a shul anyway, and everybody came, and they davened quietly. Uh, he arranged quietly for women to go to a mikvah, which was extraordinary. I mean, finding a mikvah, making sure it was kosher, but you know, life had to go on. He uh, officiated the marriages. You know, when people were giving up, he was building for the future. Um, his other classic book was called the Eish Kodesh, and this is what the Eish Kodesh was. It's extraordinary. It was written during his time in, uh, in the Warsaw Ghetto, um, and it deals with questions that were posed to him, but it's not, it's not a shoot. It's not, it's not Shilas and Shuvas. People had deep questions of Amuna that the circumstances of their lives had brought out, and he gave weekly schmoozing discussions in his secret shul on the topics. And they are incredibly profound, probing, questing, uh, defying any simple summary here. And he wrote up these shmuzim in a book called the Eish Kodesh. And when, they, when, they de de uh, when he was about to be deported to his death, he buried the book in a canister. And um, after the war, nobody went back to look for it because he didn't survive but a construction worker discovered it. And by some kind of a nace, it's one of these books, we told the story, if you remember the Ruggachubbers, the, the microfilm that preserved the Ruggachubbers legacy and, and wound up in Uncle Harry's house in the Bronx. Um, so around the same time, it was the 1960s that it was discovered in Uncle Harry, the Ruggachubbers legacy was discovered in the Bronx. So um, in Eretz Yisrael in 1960, the Eish Kodesh was published for the first time. So Kodesh Baruch has ways of uh, of, 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 of transmitting. If Torah is meant to survive, then it'll survive. Part of the prediction in the Klala, we started talking about the show in the first place, is um, the Pasuk tells us that your sons and your daughters will be given to another people. We saw this, we remember the Chuvah in, in, in uh, Rav Ephraim Oshri. 
so at the end of the war, in May of 1945, members of what was called the Vad Hatsola, which was the Council for Saving Jews that was active throughout the war, it was a small group, didn't enjoy the support of the majority of the world's Jews, but it was in America, it was in, in England, um, and uh, rabbis who spearheaded the Vad Hatsola were of Eliezer Silver and Diane Grunfeld from, from America, and Diane Grunfeld came from England, and they came. And the, and, the, and the role of chaplains, military chaplains, they came after the liberation from the camps. And um, they came to save lives. They were, it was very hard for them to do much. Uh, they did what they could. Um, and, and the famous episode that the Stum, I'm sure some of you must know, it's a story that has to be told, uh, it does reflect something. They were, they were told that they were Jews, Jewish children, they got information, had been placed in a monastery in Alsace-Lorraine, which is an area between France and Germany. And uh, they found the name of the monastery. Uh, the children, of course, were being raised as, as Catholics, and they went there. And the priest in charge was approached and was obviously not hospitable to these Jewish rabbis. And um, the rabbis asked if they could see if they were Jewish children. The priest was not cooperative. And finally, he was impatient. And he said, um, you're going to, uh, there's no way of knowing which children here come from Jewish families. You're going to have to have documentation. Now, he said that knowing that there was no such thing as documentation. The Nazis had destroyed everything. Nobody had bank accounts anymore. And certainly nobody had any papers left. So the rabbis, you know, recognized this as, as, uh, as the end of the story. Nothing else to do. The rabbi said, can we see the list of the names of the children? They can identify the Jewish names of the children. Maybe that would, that would be enough for the priest. The priest said, that's not a proof. He says, and in fact, I have no more time for you. If you can't prove which children are Jewish and do it very quickly, you're going to have to leave. So as a last resort, they asked the priest, they said, would you permit us to come back this evening when the children are going to sleep? And the priest finally agreed. And so the rabbis come in the evening and they start walking in between the aisles of the beds. And suddenly they called out the words of Shema Yisrael. And as they're saying the Shema Yisrael, first it starts from one corner of the room. There was a first cry. A child called out in French, Maman. Mommy in French. And then from other corners of the room, in different languages, there was, there was Mommy, Mamushka, each in their neighbor, native tongues. And uh, apparently the, the, uh, the Pintali Yid, the Yiddish Shunashama, came out even in these children. I think about this, I was just saying Shema the other night with my, um, my two-year-old Hannah, my four-year-old Rivka, and it's in them. Um, that was... Some of the stories ended like that. Not all of them did. There was a, an infamous figure um, who uh, <clears throat> was hidden during the Shoah, young man. I mean, at this point, he was a teenager, really. He was born in 1926. Um, after the Shoah, his father tried unsuccessfully to have his baptism annulled, but um, it, was, it didn't work, and this man actually um, rose in the church and became Archbishop. It's a very high-ranking title, Archbishop Jean-Marie Lustiger is, is of that, Paris. Is yeah. that second to the Pope? It's pretty close. It's, not, it's, not, it's, it's, it's close. It's up there. He died in 2007, Archbishop Lustiger. So he was one of these Jewish children. So, um, he, never, and it, he never converted back. He never got back. He never came back. 
Are you, how do you know a... Uh, I don't know. I mean, what do you do if you're a father after the show and your son's been stolen from you and kidnapped and brainwashed? The, uh, we, we heard such stories. We talked about this too. Uh, I mentioned in the Middle Ages. Wait, is it better to give your kid up to the Christians knows that they might grow up Christian than to have them killed? No. Well, we saw the I, I mentioned I opened with the Shiloh and Ravosher, and right. he said you're, you're permitted on the possibility that they might they might survive. Uh, but if you think about he, it, he Christianity, it anyway. Christianity is idea is. Um, that's why that's why Ravoshi distinguished between a child who doesn't have das and an adult Yehari right, right, right. So you're right. You're right there. He's of the age where he can um, identify the Jewish Jews and. Like, like, let's say he, he, he was an eight, nine-year-old kid, right? Yeah. Then, yeah, he would be permitted to do that. Because he might even understand the difference that between Christianity and Judaism, and he, no, but, he will stick to Judaism. But he said specifically it. that... But if you're giving a four-year-old listen, kid... Listen to what Barack is saying. Go ahead. But that's actually completely what's up, sir, because they said that uh, in situations like this, you have to give up your life then to convert to Christianity. Yeah. Yeah, he's nine years old, for example, he has a much greater chance of coming back to Judaism, does he not? He will remember his original parents, his original religion. Yeah. And not this lad that he was forced to raise just because he had to survive. Lichora. Lichora. Remember the um, son of the Enyakov, who was also co-author of the Enyakov of uh, Levi Ibn Khaviv, um, was in the Spanish... Uh, Inquisition, and when he was in Portugal, they, they, the story was his conversion was forced. Um, and that became part of the whole episode, if you remember the whole Smicha controversy that follows. And that story came up, and it was simply rejected because as a youth, he was not accountable for his actions, among, among other reasons, that whether, whether it even took place or not. In another story, a boy by the name of Oswald Rufesen, who was from Oshpitz in Poland, was a member of Bnei Akiva. He, he was he was a religious Jew, um, and he hid in a monastery to escape. After the war, he converted, and he was a very famous figure in Israel. At least uh, he changed his name. He became Brother Daniel, and he became a Carmelite monk in Stella Maris, which is up uh, in the in the area of Haifa. And the reason why it was, very, it was an infamous case is that as Brother Daniel, as a Christian, he came to the uh, state of Israel on the law of return, or he wanted to be reaccepted re to the Jewish state as a Christian. And it's, it, uh, it raised legal questions of how far does the law of return extend, even to such a person who no longer identifies with the Jewish people. And, and he came, and he lived there. So it worked out somehow. But it was, it was not without huge controversy in the process, as you can imagine. Um, what was going on outside of Europe? Uh, that's a huge question, and um, we know that the, um, in terms of America in general, America and the Allies were. We, we often think of them as the good guys. They did liberate the camps. Kachbarah did that, but they seemed to be Hashem's shliach. They, they were the agents to seem to uh, they seem they seem to help out. Um, there's a picture at at, at Yad Vashem that you can see. Um, they're very PC about it they don't want to offend any Americans um, so they, they ask it in the passive tense I'm trying to remember exactly how they do it the pictures are very well known they are American um, photographs taken from an aerial point of view of Auschwitz 
taken in um, early 1944. And the question that you see in the museum display was, why wasn't Auschwitz bombed? But what probably is the more pointed question that should have been asked, but I guess God B'Shem is too PC to have asked it, why didn't America bomb Auschwitz? And the answer is, is the Jews have only had a Kodesh Baruch Hu. America, it's true, there's been no country in the history of the world that's been as kind to the Jews as America, relative to other places, which isn't saying that much. We've enjoyed greater freedoms. The Americans' role in World War II is to some degree commendable. Other, in other instances, it's a, it's a shanda and a busha. We already spoke about the, the Avayan Conference. But you have to also realize that for the first many years of the war, through the Nazi ascendancy to, the, to, the, to, to, to their execution of much of the final solution, the Americans actually were not interested in entering the war. It was a later process that forced their hand and made them enter. So it's, it, how do you render this, the complexity of this? They're not bad guys. They're not really good guys either on the big, in, the, in the big scheme of things. Um, Wait, but strategically, what are they going to answer why they didn't bomb it? Why didn't they? Yeah. There is no reasonable answer that right. I've heard. No, they, they generally avoid the question, and that way you don't have to answer it. Right. I heard an answer. Go ahead. What's the, the answer? The answer was not a good answer. Because there was no, uh, there was no strategy. There would be no point. Instead, I heard the Jews. Yeah, but it fits you in the word. It didn't matter. Uh, they said that a plane actually went over, like a bombing plane, went over Auschwitz to another town and... Uh, destroyed the town. It had gunpowder or something in the town. Yeah, but part of the war was to survive, was it not? In theory. In theory. It depends on how... You realize with politicians, it depends how to play in Peoria. That's that's what's usually being asked. Then it's pretty overly anti-Semitic. Why didn't you do it? No, because I mean again, that's what you and I might think. And you could it depends on which politician is defending it. I don't know if it's relevant for you and I to render judgment. My you know, trying to be a student of history, what I get get from this is the Americans, what I said, they were okay. They're okay. I wouldn't want to trust them in a long shot. In terms of forging our own policy, what goes on in Eric's Israel nowadays, Americans are okay. We'll take what we can get. Right, right, right. Okay, right. In other words, some people, I think, uh, overdo the importance of the, of the, uh, you know, the, the, the uh, alliance with America. But I don't mean to jeopardize it either. I'm grateful for what we can get. And, you know, okay. So, um, the American Jewish community, not much better, as a whole. Not much better. They did, relative to their numbers and their influence and their potential and their wealth, relatively little to help their cousins in Europe. Um, there was an initiative, again it was a minority, there were a few voices but it was in a void. There was an initiative in 1941, an appeal to send food packages to Polish Jews, and in the words of one American Jewish leader, one of the prominent uh, members of the American Jewish community, he emphatically rejected the idea. He said, we need, he, this is quoting him, we need to subsume our needs to the greater needs of the world. It is forbidden for us to do anything to create the suspicion that we are uh, somehow distinct as Jews. Who said that? I don't, I, I deliberately hid his name because it's 
so shocking. I, I have no reason to paint one person as an enemy over the others. He said it, but honestly, he was reflecting an attitude. The American Jews, one thing that's hard for us to appreciate today because in the last half of the, in, in the post-show American scene, um, Jews are more confident and uh, let's say proud to be Jewish than at any other time in history in any other society. That was not the case in the time of the Shoah. In fact, these, the, the sinking feeling that most American Jews had was that it's going to come over here too. We have to therefore maintain a low profile and look out for number one. Defend our own necks. You remember most American Jews by, 19, by the 1940s were incredibly deeply assimilated. And the notion of any kind of Jewish uh, collective identity, echoes of the protocols of the elders of Zion, was something that to them was anathema. You didn't do that. Shah, shah. But the same Jews who, who were appalled at any public display of support of other Jews also at night secretly listened to the radio announcements wrapped and broken because of what was going on. So they were clearly emotionally mixed. I'm describing in big picture and generalizing, obviously there were exceptions to that. Um, many were terrified to speak, let alone to act. And then there were the few, the tzaddikim, exceptional organizations. I've already mentioned the Vad Hatzola, Rebbe Eliezer Silver, but he's not alone. Uh, the Agudis Yisrael. I mean, there's a correlation. Usually Jews who are plugged into Torah who understand what chesed is, who understand kol Yisrael arabim that's, that's, that, that's how we live our lives. Those same Jews are going to be the ones, disproportionately, they're the ones in the march on Washington, and they're the ones who are fighting and campaigning and doing what they can. But they were a small voice in a, in a, in a, in a, um, in a void that ignored them, by and large. So you had the Vadat Sola, and a few other groups that, that absolutely are deserving of mention, the Gudis Yisrael, the political body of the of the Torah world. There was uh, there was a very very a, a very famous uh, figure by the name of Peter Bergson, who was actually his 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 real his real name was Hillel Cook, a nephew of Rav Cook, that anglicized the name became Peter Bergson, and his group uh, were were already in America and were were among the great campaigners for trying to do something anything to help the Jews. Uh, ben Hecht. There's another name who was an Academy Award winner or just a nominee for screenplay. He wrote a book called Perfidy that's well known. Uh, and um, anyway, they made efforts. And probably the most important effort was their achievement, really, was um, they created what was called, the, uh, well, they pressured, they lobbied President Roosevelt to create what was called the War Refugee Board which was an official body that expanded the numbers from the Avayan Conference and um, ultimately would increase the numbers of Jews that were taken as refugees and saved arguably as many as 100,000 lives. So that's huge. Right, so how do we take this? It's huge and these people are tzaddikim and their efforts were amazing and that's it. That's all you can save. And this is your talk in America. But maybe it's easy for us, with perfect hindsight, to look back and say, you know, if we were there because we have a different perspective than they had in history. Well, we see it prevented everything afterwards. What's that? You know, the whole thing, like, that every, that, that was called, the Allies or the Axis. The Axis. Axis powers, yeah, the so, Nazis and the Italians. Yeah, so, the Nazis, so, at least nowadays, you know, you don't let them have an army. Fair enough, fair enough. That's why I, I, my, my interest here is to try as best yeah, I can no, I'm in the not very. I'm justifying it, but like, it's like, you know, at least it prevent the future oppression from them. 
Fair enough, fair enough. I, you know, in, I, I know some of you might think that I talk way too much, but if you can believe it, I'm actually, this is relatively brief and, and cursory. That's necessarily so in giving an overview of history. Um, but, you know, relative, I, I, what I, my aim is to try to give over the complexity of the picture and the good and the bad and the ugly and everything in between. So it's neither all good nor all bad, and uh, it's a mixed record. And we should understand it as such. Um, for, for, for our own historical perspective. Uh, I know that um, there was there were a couple other figures as well. I'll mention one that I'm personally connected to. I'm Zohar to be connected to as a woman who used to be Orthodox, but went off, a uh, whole story. She was a guna uh, by the name of, well-known personality by the name of Trudy, Trudy Weiss Rosemarine, who actually has one son who's a big Tommy Kochum just up the street from where we are right now, an older, older man right now. Um, she edited what was one of the, um, was was one of the oldest and longest lasting journals of Jewish affairs of the American Jewish community called the Jewish Spectator. And she was virtually alone in, in she was from Germany and she screamed. And she wrote about what was going on in the Shoah. She, she absolutely condemned the American Jewish leaders and their silence on the subject. She, she wrote about what was going on when everybody else was saying Shah still. She was, she was somebody who was outspoken. And she made a name for herself as a result of that. Afterwards, begrudgingly, people started realizing maybe she was right and we were wrong. Um, I'm Zoha, just Agav Milsa in her, in her old age. She went on the speaking circuit, and my father got into Jewish community life, and he had programs in Eretz Israel and in America, and was connected to her, and he was an editor. And when she died, she left the magazine to him. So he edited Jewish Spectator. And then for a period, I took over the Jewish Spectator. So I was Zoha to edit, edit the magazine. I tried to do it as a Kiruv piece. Uh, and um, anyway, anybody's interested in back copies, you'll come to my house next. I'll show you the old, old copies that you respected, including some of her stuff, which is fantastic. Wait, it, it, it was what? The largest what? It was in its heyday the largest American Jewish journal. It was also the longest lasting the American Jewish community until my father finally pulled the plug in the early 2000s when, because media is suffering with the internet, uh, the, the, written, so the people. Were you editing by that point? So, no, no, I edited in the, in the, in the mid 90s. So, it was a big one? It was not. It was, it was shrinking. It was shrinking. It was not a huge thing when I was the editor, but it was, uh, I, used, I said, well, great, I'll edit a magazine. And it was an opportunity. I, what I did is I brought in as much Torah content as I could inject and, and Kiruv ideas and, and whatever I could get out there to the, Ameri to the mainstream American Jewish community who were, who were and remain unexposed to a lot of the greatness of, of uh, Torah ideas. So that was my, my interest. The... Um, Nazis remained singular in their purpose till the end, proving that there was absolutely nothing sane or rational about this. This was a this was a fight of metaphysical, mystical proportions. And I, I keep going back to this because you cannot understand the Shoah unless you look at this in the context of Esav and Yaakov by Habanim de Kirba, that the, the, the twins wrestled in the womb of Rivka, and, and that same metaphysical struggle that defines most of history is 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 the way that is the um, prism through which one should see the Shoah. The Nazis were crazed up until the last right to the very end. When the Allies were clearly overwhelming the Axis powers, the Nazis could have and should have, by any military assessment, should have focused their efforts on defense. But they didn't. Their only purpose, especially as they became more desperate, was the what they called extermination of the Jews. In fact, in 
between March and July of 1944, insanely, rather than going on the defensive, they invaded Hungary. Because Hungary was still one of the few untapped uh, areas where you still had uh, most of the Jewish community was still around by, night, by, by, by the spring of 1944. And they sent most of the Jews, about 400,000, to their death in Auschwitz between those, in, those, in those four months. Because that's what they were slated to do. And if their time was limited and they were going to lose and they were going to go down fighting in a suicide, in, in a suicide act, they're going to take as many Jews as they can with them. Hitler said as much. In his last dispatch before his suicide on April 30th, 1944, he said, Above all, I enjoin the leaders of the nation to oppose the universal poisoner of all peoples, international Jewry. Wait, did Hitler write that in really why would you get that impression? No, but I'm wondering, like, if, he, if it was political. Did he honestly believe No, I don't believe that. No, I believe he did. And that, that was the argument I tried to say when I quoted those selections from Mein Kampf. Um, and it's worth studying a little bit of Mein Kampf to get the sense he was, um, he was emotionally, ideologically, his whole raison d'etre was to the destruction of the Jewish people. Not, and what the point so I just like, tried to make now, nothing else mattered to the point of suicide, to the mass destruction. One, one, could, one would imagine that he'd be willing to, to have the entire Third Reich, the entire German people, go down in flames if that could assure him that somehow that would mean the destruction of the Jewish people in, in, in total. So it was irrational to the point that this character of Hitler almost seems more like someone out of a book. Like it really does. So I, I, I am making that argument. And, and, and it's, it's, you know, fiction couldn't be stranger than the truth in this regard. That's right. So it almost seems supernatural. I mean, that would be a supernatural. Right. Yeah. And that's why I bring you back to the clone. Right. That there's something of a Kaddish Baruch Hu in all of this. And there's something of Asa and Yaakov in all of this, too. Because nothing else makes any sense. When you really study it, that's my assertion to you. And you'll come to your own conclusions. Um, the camps were so-called liberated. People died after. People died, sometimes uh, people who were starving, they learned this when it was too little, too late. People who were starving, yeah, when you start, you have to be very careful how to, how to um, start a new program of, of nutrition, and many, many died with the uh, too much, too soon. Yeah, they came with like Hershey's chocolate. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, um, after the liberations, pogroms continued in one of the more infamous instances but it was only one of many about 40 survivors returned to their village of Kielce in Poland and um, there was a pogrom in 1946 and they were murdered so lest you think that that was the end, the camps were liberated they all lived happily ever after um, 250,000 Jews were placed in DP camps, displaced persons camps uh, they were obviously not concentration camps. But they were refugee camps. There was no place for them still. You remember uh, Weitzman's saying, nothing much had changed. The world was still divided between those who um, wanted to get rid of their Jews and the others who wouldn't take the Jews. There was no place in Palestine. You remember the white paper is still in full force. And the British, irrationally I'm claiming, by the same zeal that drove Hitler, will not let one, one Jew in. Most of the Jews at this point did indeed want to enter Palestine. Uh, 
many would be smuggled in anyway, and we talked about the refugee boats, the most famous and celebrated, helps to have a movie made about you, is the Exodus, but it's not the only one. Um, in Hebrew, there's an expression they draw from, uh, they draw from the, the Torah, the uh, mapili, was a whole, whole parsha. we'll tell all this. I'm gonna, at the beginning of our next Zman, we're gonna, get in, we're, gonna, we're gonna be focused very much on Palestine and Eretz Israel and the, and the, and the uh, ensuing activities, but let me, let me tie up. I did, I did, yeah, 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 yeah. It's on people's minds, it coincides with the Oman Smalut. That's, that's what we'll be doing at the beginning of the next month. Um, Anti-Semitism was still functional around the world. Um, few countries were willing to absorb Jews. As one representative of the Vatican put it, he said at the, t at the time, he said this, quoting it, I'm not anti-Semitic, I just hate them. 1947, the best well, picture. Well, it's actually kind of true. Anti-Semitism doesn't necessarily mean Jews. Okay. It actually does, though. So then we're playing, game, then we're playing games of semantics. Then we're playing games of semantics. No, no, it isn't. Anti-Jewish changed to anti-Semitic uh, by a German, right? German. I think Elon had the, had the, had the statement of the day. Uh, Anti-Semitism is simply a game of semantics. It's just playing with words. Uh, the truth, you, we, we understand. It, the world was in collective denial, and we'll talk about this, and I mentioned this yesterday as well. And to illustrate that, I'll just tell you a little anecdote from my own memory from past, because I used to be a movie buff once upon a time. Don't see the things anymore. Uh, 1947, the Best Picture winner was Gentleman's Agreement about anti-Semitism. Hollywood tackles a tough issue. Gentleman's is, is, is an appallingly uh, anodyne, meaning like, you know, sanitized within an inch of its life. What's it about? Gregory Peck um, goes undercover to do an under, as, as a non, he's non-Jewish, as a non-Jewish journalist, to go undercover, do an expose for his newspaper on anti-Semitism. So he goes about the business of trying to check into country clubs. His name is Green, but he becomes Greenberg for the story. And he goes undercover to assess anti-Semitism. And um, you know, he'll go to the, he'll go to the, uh, you know, the hotel and he says, uh, do you have a room for two? My name is Greenberg. And uh, you know, the, the response to the reception is, I'm sorry, Mr. Greenberg, we've just um, burned down. And he can't get into the country clubs. Okay, that's what the movie's about. And one best picture, but honestly, coming on the heels of the Shoah, it was obscene. That's what they could talk about in Hollywood. Hollywood being, I mean, was run by the Jews, but that's as much as they, yeah, that was the scene in American Jew, the American Jewry and the American scene in general. Nobody would talk about it, could talk about it. They couldn't bring themselves. The atmosphere was such that it was still hush-hush. And so the best you could do is tell such a story and at the end they'll end happily ever after once they come back to their non-Jewish roots and, and whatever, whatever happens in the end is irrelevant. Um, <clears throat> but now we're going to be picking up the pieces and the residue of the Shoah stays with us till today and therefore in history, we're not done with the topic, it's going to be, um, it's, it's the shadow in which modern Jewry continues to live. And that's reflected in so many different ways. It's reflected in the following Shaila that was asked in the 1950s of Moshe Feinstein, who emerges around this time as Posek Ador. Um, in one case, a similar case to ones we've heard of today, uh, that Christians were hiding a woman and her, ch and her children. Um, and then they came to her with the following proposition. They said, you're going to convert now. And if you don't convert, you with the children, um, we're going to turn you over into, to the Germans. 
And the woman's Shaila now, she asks after the war, after, after um, having survived, she said, Rav Moshe, I, I didn't have the strength. I, I succumbed. And I converted, and, and, and the children converted. She says, now that we're... How convert back? Well, okay, she's asking a Shaila. She says, um, I understood it was Yeharik Val Yavor, and I'm an evil person. Is there any way that I can now make tshuva? So um, he writes back a beautiful tshuva. If you want to understand the poignance, the uh, compassion of a gadol, you read this tshuva of Moshe. It's in your idea. I can look it up for you if you want the actual re- re- reference. He says, indeed, you're right. The situation was Yeharik Val Yavor, a person supposed to die under those circumstances. But he adds the point, this is a Kiddush people don't always realize. Still, if somebody does not die and does transgress, it's not a bodhisattva. Meaning, serving idolatry or converting to Christianity in this case under duress is not actually the same thing as a bodhisattva. It's um, the Easter is, is the person has transgressed Chil Hashem. They've desecrated the Kaddish Baruch's name. Um, there's no bodhisattva but onus by force. And so he, he says to her, therefore, absolutely, you'll make tshuva. Your tshuva is already implicit in, your, in, in the fact that you asked the shaila. He says, your kapara is that you and the children will now lead lives of Kiddush Hashem. Today, Hitler has become a metaphor for evil. As we said yesterday, he used to be paro, now, now, now Hitler. It's often overused and cheapened. People have lawsuits. People are very self-righteous. The Holocaust industry has become, uh, like we said, it's a business. People have trips to Europe now. They, they, they peddle the Holocaust. Apparently, that's the way they win Oscars nowadays. That's uh, uh, Somebody said that to me. Um, there's a lot of cynical use of this, uh, this, this nightmare that we, can't, we can barely fathom over a half a century later, and well over a half a century later. And... Um, it's cheapened and people, it's turned into a form of religion in, in, in Israel, by secular, by many. Uh, people get very self-righteous if you use Nazi metaphors to talk, describe other people. No, no, the Nazis were Nazis. Jews are very, very, it's, it's a wonderful victim card they love to play. Um, Hitler himself, the metaphor is almost a cheapened metaphor for evil. Um, there's one reaction that people have. Uh, there was a secular Jewish uh, guy named Emil Fackenheim, who was a professor, pr- professor of philosophy, who, um, who said that there should be, he said with lot, all kinds of self-righteous, uh, pompous, uh, semi-religiosity, he said there should be a 614th commandment, never forget. Never forget, which is a, a term, I don't know, growing up, some of you grew up in religious, with religious schooling and backgrounds, maybe you wouldn't have heard this, uh, some of us who were exposed to reform conservative, um, you must have heard "never forget" growing up. It literally becomes forget the six hundred fourteenth commandment. It's 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 up there with the ten, the top ten as far as far as they they concerned. Holocaust becomes ritualized and part of their religious outlook, and the holy mission to what does that mean? Never forget. I guess assigning himself and the rest of us with this mission that we're going to remind the world. Do you know that there are over uh, 60 Holocaust museums and counting? They're, they're, they're continually being built in, in, in um, six continents. They haven't yet gotten to the Antarctica um, in the world. There is immense money spent on the immortalization of the Shoah, the story of the Shoah. Um, 
let me try to say this without being misunderstood. I'm often misunderstood, but I try to make the following insight. It's legitimate to do so. We should support such an idea that we want the world to know that this happened and has we would we would want to do that it would happen again and that we would want to do what we could our small part to making sure that it won't happen again. A lot of bunch of people today who denied that Absolutely true, and their numbers are growing. And with every day that passes, there are fewer Holocaust survivors and fewer people who can give eyewitness testimony to vouch for the, uh, the, the, the truisms uh, of, of what took place. But still, how do we count the fear of the heresy in Fackenheim's, you know, just the very fact that he adds a commandment is, is itself uh, obviously problematic, but he doesn't care about Torah. Uh, but the, the, the implication that somehow human beings, with their vast wealth even, somehow have the, have the control to be able to say never again <coughs> that we can influence the course of humanity by building a few museums, that we can make some movies, Spielberg can have his uh, archive to uh, videotape all the survivors. <coughs> but in Iran, <coughs> In Iran, it was Ahmadinejad, and Rouhani is a little bit softer tone, but the same message that Ayatollahs say, it was all just a Zionist conspiracy. None of it ever happened, as you say, the Holocaust deniers. Holocaust deniers will, will either, in the extreme, they'll deny everything, but more commonly, they'll say it wasn't that bad. They'll tone it down, and they'll say it was pure Jewish propaganda, part of the, elders of the, of the protocols of the elders of Zion, Zion to, 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 uh, to manipulate getting their Jewish state, and, 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 and so on. Um, since the Klala tells us that um, the non-Jews will stop at nothing to get the Jews as long as the Jewish people are not doing their business, doing tshuva and doing, keeping, keeping the Torah and mitzvot. So these kinds of things will continue to happen. So that our ability to really fight this, to say never again, is quite limited and quite chutzpah, quite arrogant to presume that we can do this. I'm, I'm, I'm uh, reminded of our current re-elected Prime Minister, even with now in, in, in the state of Israel. Uh, well, not yet, but for, for, for Well, okay, yeah, fair enough. Fair, all right, all right. The true yeah. judgment's out, 100%. And, okay, so he's been re-elected as something big, and maybe he'll put to a likelihood he'll put together a coalition government. In any case, um, back when he was uh, a defense minister, I think it was 1997, he spoke at the March of the Living, one of these, um, one of these ways, in of, ways of cashing in on the Holocaust, sending all those kids to, to the camps. Uh, but in this case, just to visit. Um, and he spoke to over 5,000 people who were present, and he said um, whatever he said. And his punchline that he got to, he said, but I'm telling you as defense minister of the modern state of Israel, I can tell you today, I can look in the eye and tell you today, because of Sahel, because we have the, uh, the uh, IDF, the Israel Defense Force um, Forces, um, that such a situation of the Holocaust will indeed never happen again. Thus declared Bibi Netanyahu in Auschwitz, marching in Auschwitz in 1997. I remember hearing that and thinking, you go, Bibi. Good. Okay. Uh, what deluded arrogance to think that the Sahal, Sahal, if you've been watching, if you're keeping score, tally cards in the last few rounds of fighting, haven't been doing so well. They're fighting a lose-lose. I mean, they, I don't know what their options are. There aren't really many. Uh, but they're kind of like so many dogs chasing their tails in circles and trying to defend the Jewish people in Eretz Israel, let alone around the world. 
that, he could, that, that anybody could have the notion that they could prevent this never again. It's sort of, if you know the expression, whistling past the graveyard, right? How can we make such claims? Um, again, I encourage us with everything else to try as best we can in grappling with the themes that we've raised but not resolved, um, to try to understand that this is part of the eternal enmity that we've experienced. Um, you should know the expression as Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai teaches this. Rashi quotes this in uh, Parshas Vayishlach. Halacha he. It's a halacha biyadua. It's known Esav Sones Yaakov. And within this, within this context, that's the way all of this, all of history is meant to be understood. It's the reason why what the secular Israelis call the day dedicated to, this, to the uh, remembrance of the Holocaust uh, that's coming up also in a few weeks um, is very problematic. There is a day, there is an official Holocaust Memorial Day. It's called Tisha B'Av. It's the destruction of the Second Temple when Esav, under the guise of the Romans, came and destroyed our holy base of Mikdash, and we've been reeling ever since as a people. And we're still trying to find our place in the world, and if you separate and distinguish the Shoah from that big colossal perspective, um, you've missed the point. You have to see it in the big scheme of things and understand that this is all part of the unfolding process of history uh, and, and the questions we should be asking should be much more self-reflective, self-focused. Uh, what, 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 what do we need to do to get to the next stage? Um, the next stage, um, after the, uh, in, in our next session, we're going to return to Palestine, which is going to be kind of Eretz Israel, and we're going to talk about the Arab-Israeli war. Okay, have a uh, Hajj Shabbat Shalom.